Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. While we enjoy the warmer weather and longer days of summer, stargazing becomes a bit more challenging because the night sky never quite gets dark enough. Despite this, there are a number of summer constellations that observers can enjoy. Following the line across the sky is the constellation Virgo the Maiden. The second largest constellation in the night sky, it is home to the Virgo Cluster, the nearest large galaxy cluster to the Earth. From a dark sky site, a good-sized telescope will reveal some of the cluster members. Look towards the center of the cluster and you'll spot the giant elliptical galaxy M87. Virgo is also home to the Sombrero Galaxy, a spiral galaxy with a thick ring of dust giving it a Sombrero-like appearance. Use the brightest star in Virgo, the star Spica, to locate the Sombrero Galaxy. As with the Virgo Cluster, this galaxy is best viewed through a telescope. Jupiter makes a grand return to the evening sky this month and reaches opposition on June the 10th. At opposition, a planet is directly opposite the sun in the sky, making it the best time of year to observe the planet. Rising in the east just as the sun sets in the west, Jupiter will lie low above the southern horizon, so observers will need to have a clear view towards the south. Using a pair of binoculars or a telescope will reveal the four largest moons of Jupiter, the Galilean moons Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Although Jupiter reaches opposition on June 10th, it will not be at its closest to the Earth. This is because the orbits of the planets are not perfect circles, so we'll have to wait until June 12th until the two planets are at their closest to each other. On June 16th, look towards the south to see the moon brush past the pincer of the Scorpion. The constellation Scorpius is one of the few constellations that resembles its namesake. Scorpius is home to a number of deep sky objects, and although we cannot see the entire constellation from our latitude, the portion we can see contains the globular star clusters M4 and M80. Globular star clusters contain some of the oldest stars in the universe, and with stellar populations numbering in the tens of millions, globular clusters are definitely worth looking at. To find M4, Look to the right of the red supergiant Antares, and for M80, scan the sky midway between Antares and Acrab. As full moon occurs on June 17th, wait until the dark skies at new moon to enjoy these deep sky objects. Grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope and go on a planet tour on the evening of June 18th. Look towards the northwestern horizon after sunset and you'll spot Mercury and Mars passing close to each other. As both planets will be just above the horizon, you'll need an unobstructed view to observe them. Saturn rises in the southeast at around 10.30pm and is accompanied by the moon. The spectacular ring system of Saturn stands out in a telescope. 
The rings stretch over 170,000 miles from edge to edge, but the average thickness is only around half a mile. Although the moon will be bright, you might just spot Titan, the largest moon of Saturn. To see some more planets, you'll have to wait until the early hours of the morning. Neptune rises in the east at around 1am, and Uranus rises around an hour and a half later. Venus rises just before the sun, but as it will lie very low above the horizon, you'll need a very clear view towards the northeast to spot it. The sun reaches its most northerly point on its path through the sky on June 21st. Known as the summer solstice, it is the longest day and shortest night of the year and also marks the beginning rather than the midpoint of summer. When the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun, it receives more direct sunlight and for a longer portion of the day resulting in an increase in temperature. However, the atmosphere and more importantly the oceans take time to heat up. This results in a considerable lag between the summer solstice and the peak of the warm weather. This is why the summer solstice is considered to be the start of summer with June, July and August the summer months. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Every month, Patricia and I choose a news story that's broken in the last month that we want to tell you more about. And then you get the chance to vote on your favourite on our Twitter feed, at ROG Astronomers. So we're all waiting to hear what Patricia has come up with this month. So what have you got for us? Well, for this month, my story actually begins with a question. Oh. And that question is... What does Charlie Brown have to do with the Guinness World Record that was set 50 years ago on May 26, 1969 for the fastest speed a human has ever traveled at? This sounds like a very strange joke, but I'm going to go with I have no idea. Go on. Well, some may have guessed what the answer could be on the basis that I'm talking about something that happened 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Oh, I see. Yes. Um, but... If you don't quite know what the answer to a question is, don't worry, because I will reveal the answer. But before I do, we have to do some time traveling again. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> and we're going to head back to May 18th, 1969, when the Saturn V rocket launched Apollo 10 from launch pad 39B at Cape Kennedy. Hmm. On board were the Apollo astronauts Thomas Stafford, John Young and Eugene Cernan. Now, Apollo 10 is unfortunately often overlooked mm -hmm. and is naturally overshadowed by the success of Apollo 11. Indeed. But Apollo 10 was nonetheless a very important mission. And that was because Apollo 10 served as the dress rehearsal for Apollo 11. And the purpose of the mission was to confirm all aspects of the lunar landing exactly as it would be performed for Apollo 11 without actually landing, landing on, on the, the surface, moon. Yes. So what do I mean? Well, the astronauts would undock the lunar module, they'd begin a descent to the lunar surface, but instead of landing, they would then reascend and redock. Now, they had to do this because the previous tests of the lunar module, of course, happened with Apollo 9, mm -hmm. but that was most of those tests were conducted in low Earth orbit. 
here was the opportunity to test how the lunar module and all of the rendezvous and all of the docking attempts would work but in a lunar orbit. Now because the lunar module was set to skim over the surface of the moon and would snoop around the Apollo 11 landing site, the lunar module was named Snoopy. Oh, okay. Therefore, it was only fitting that the command module was named Charlie, Charlie Brown, Brown after the characters in Peanuts. <laughs> um, of course, three days after the launch of Apollo 10, the Apollo 10 reached the moon and went into lunar orbit. And as part of their preparations for the test of the lunar module, Cernan had to open up the hatch to Snoopy for the very first time and went in to do a brief inspection and to stop partially powering up the lunar module in anticipation of those tests that were going to be carried out. And as the crew got ready to settle down for their first night's sleep in lunar orbit, Cernan asked Mission Control to watch Snoopy well tonight and make him sleep good and we'll take him out for a walk and let him stretch his legs in the morning, which I think is a lovely thing to say just before going to bed. Um, of course, at that point, the mission was running absolutely smoothly and on the morning of May 22nd, the crew woke up very early to begin their busiest day of the mission an eight-hour sequence of maneuvers in lunar orbit to simulate, to simulate all operations except the landing itself. Now, of course, if you're going to be doing these operations, you have to be prepared for all eventualities. So the crew donned their pressure suits and Stafford and Cernan transferred to Snoopy, while Young remained behind in Charlie Brown. The hatches to the two spacecraft were closed and after reach, receiving a go from mission control, the two spacecraft undocked and separated. And when Snoopy was a short distance away from Charlie Brown, it began a slow roll so that Young could inspect the entire spacecraft and make sure that there weren't any signs of damage and that everything looked fine before they were given the go ahead to start the main tests of the day. When everything was good to go, Young then fired Charlie Brown's thrusters to increase their separation from Snoopy. So Charlie Brown moved away and Snoopy got ready to begin its descent process. Now, a few minutes before Snoopy actually disappeared behind the moon, Mission Control gave them the go-ahead to begin that descent orbit insertion. So basically, they burned the lunar module's descent propulsion system engine to lower the orbit's low point, thereby taking Snoopy closer and closer to the lunar surface. Now, after a successful burn, the lunar module ended up within about 47,000 feet, around 14 kilometers above the lunar surface. And that's where they stopped. So, so close. That must have been frustrating, so absolutely. Well, although they didn't land on the moon, they had gotten closer to the lunar surface than any other Apollo mm -hmm. astronaut had before at that stage. So they did sort of get a close-up look of the moon relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and the one thing that is consistent in the commentary on board Apollo 10, uh, on board Snoopy at that point, was just commentary about the sizes of the boulders on the lunar surface. So mm. if you have a look at the transcripts from everything that was being said, it's all about the boulders. <laughs> so it's one of these oddities of the mission that, even though they were sort of that close to the lunar surface, 
They're really obsessed with boulders. Even even 14 kilometers up. Yeah, and that that's, was the thing is they impressive. were commenting on the sizes of these boulders, and that must, um, that must have. Uh, uh, at least made them slightly concerned about how feasible it was to, to, to actually land. Yeah, so one of the things they did was, being so close to the surface, it actually allowed them to test the landing radar, which mm. was going to be used on uh, Apollo 11. And they also were able to complete two passes over the Apollo 11 landing site, so that proposed uh. site for Apollo 11, because they had no close-up images. Yes, quite. So this was part of a sort of scouting mission to see, well, is it feasible to land a spacecraft in the in the chosen uh, area and at this point you might be wondering were the astronauts in snoopy perhaps tempted to land on the moon so to ignore the strict <laughs> command from mission control yes correct. and the answer is no simply because there was not enough fuel on board the lunar module so had they landed one way trip yeah, right. <laughs> pretty much a one-way trip um, with no chance of surviving even if they waited until Apollo 11. Yeah. So I know many people often ask, well, why didn't they just do it? it as you said, it was a one-way trip, not a very good idea. So no. that's why they didn't, they didn't do that. But now that they'd completed their sauce and had spent quite a couple of hours doing this, they started to begin their preparations to return back to Charlie Brown. Now the lunar module was designed with two stages, a descent stage and an ascent stage. And on a landing mission, the descent stage actually serves as a launch pad. And that's for that crew descent stage. So they would use that because a crew descent stage had a small engine that would propel it from the surface back into orbit. On Apollo 10, they were going to do the same thing, but from already being in orbit. So a slightly different way of doing that. So in order to be able to separate the two stages, Stafford activated small explosives that forcibly separated the two stages. But rather than experiencing a smooth flight, the spacecraft actually began tumbling wildly in all three axes, which was not expected. And Cernan and Stafford struggled to get Snoopy under control and the situation did not look good at that point. They were very close to losing their entire navigation system and had they not been able to recover, they would most likely have crashed into oh, the goodness. surface of the moon. Now this is a part of the Apollo 10 mission that not many people know about that this tumbling had happened. Mm. and. Using manual controls, they eventually managed to regain control of Snoopy and were able to continue their journey to the rendezvous with Charlie Brown. They might be wondering what massive technical failure had happened at this point. There has to have been something catastrophic. And it later turned out to be human error. Oh dear. A switch was in the wrong position. Oh no. Oh dear. <laughs> and it was enough of an error that in subsequent Apollo missions, it was written in the book about making very, very sure that this particular switch was in a certain position mm. if you were going to be executing those kinds of commands. So um, a human error almost would, you know, cause would a major problem in, in the Apollo yeah. program because had that ended badly, Apollo, Apollo 11 probably... probably yeah. Apollo 11, absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
But it's alright. Um, and after an adventurous solo journey, Snoopy returned the crew safely to Charlie Brown, with Stafford radioing that Snoopy and Charlie Brown are hugging each other. So that was just after they'd redocked and everyone was safely on board. And those hatches were then closed for the final time, and they bid farewell to Snoopy. Mm. Snoopy had done its job, so Snoopy separated from Charlie Brown, fired its engines until they ran out of fuel, and then was sent safely out of lunar orbit and in, into orbit around the sun. Ah. Charlie Brown then, of course, began its journey back home. And on that journey back, it reached an astonishing top speed <laughs> of 24,791 miles per hour. Pretty quick. Or, very <laughs> 39,897 kilometers per hour relative to the Earth, with the command module splashing down safely on May 26th, 1969. So, at the time of this recording, it was 50 years ago yesterday. So, that was the end of the Apollo 10 mission. And that speed that they attained is the fastest speed a human has ever traveled. Yes, yeah, yeah, it would be. And that's the answer to the question. That's what Charlie Brown (laughs) has to do with setting the Guinness World Record for the fastest speed a human has ever achieved. Because Charlie Brown was the command module. And if you'd like to see Charlie Brown, well, it's currently on display at the Science Museum in London. So if you've never had the opportunity to see it, you have to go just for the sole reason of it's being to the moon. I know it didn't touch it, but it's been oh, it's been pretty moon. close. Um, and as for Snoopy, well, we know that its engine burn sent it into orbit around the sun, but we don't know where it is now. Mm. So Snoopy's still out there somewhere, we think. Mm-hmm. And there are a whole bunch of amateur astronomers who are keen to try and find Snoopy. <laughs> that would be lovely if we could find Snoopy, considering it is the year of big anniversaries. And just as an added, did you know, while the crew of Apollo 10 achieved a couple of firsts in space while they were out there, they were the first to broadcast in color from space because the previous missions had all been black and white transmissions. Mm-hmm. And, and this is most likely going to be asked in a pub quiz at some point, so listen just very, carefully, very carefully. Yeah. They were the first crew to shave in space. Good to know. Very good information. You heard it here. So if it's asked in a pub quiz, now you know what the answer is. And you also know what Charlie Brown has to do with a Guinness World Record. Very good. Excellent. Uh, it's a lovely story. Uh, the uh, These missions, are often to the engineers and the astronauts that they um, that are working on them, they almost become sort of part of the family sometimes and it's, it's lovely when you see these uh, um, anthropomorphizations of the the, the 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 rockets and the lander and all sorts of things like that yeah <laughs> well i do know nasa weren't particularly happy with the call signs um, that were chosen yes, absolutely but i think they were quite endearing and as you say considering that both charlie brown and snoopy kept them alive mm-hmm you do get attached to the spacecraft. Yes. And I, I know from their reports that they they were quite distressed at just how far Snoopy was sent out of orbit. They knew it was going to go far away away, but they weren't anticipating just how far it is. And there's also some transcripts about how upset the astronauts actually oh. were about it. But, but there you go. Just a lovely little side story about 
follow Tim. Fantastic. Right. Okay. Um, it's 1998. Uh, rocks from space are about to hit the Earth, and there's only one man who can save the day. Um, and it's rather telling from uh, in the world of cinema that you don't actually know yet whether I'm talking about Bruce Willis or Morgan Freeman because two big uh, asteroid collision or comet collision uh, films came out in 1998. Of course, Armageddon, which was Michael Bay and uh, Bruce Willis, uh, and uh, Deep Impact, which was Morgan Freeman and Elijah Wood. Um, yes, I'm going to be talking today about the possibility of asteroid impacts on the Earth, and more importantly, protecting Earth from uh, what I'm going to euphemistically refer to as unexpected celestial arrival of cataclysmic proportions. Um, basically, rocks wiping out life on the, Earth, on, on the planet. Um, one thing to, to preface all of this with is that they are very, very rare. True extinction-level events uh, happen maybe once every hundred million years or so, um, with the last one being the asteroid impacts that wiped out the dinosaurs approximately 65 million years ago. And what's more, um, large impactors, so potentially large hazardous rocks in space, um, are actively being sought out and monitored by NASA and various other space agencies um, so that we're forewarned if the worst should happen. Um, and for now, it's worth mentioning things, as far as we know, are looking fine. Um, though there are a number of relative near misses. Um, in fact, if you read certain publications, uh, you'll realise that actually these things are really quite common. Near misses um, happen all the time, uh, weekly, if not more often than that. Uh, and despite the sensationalist tone that many of these publications take, for the most part, they're really not all that dangerous. Um, the vast majority are only in the sort of the 6 to 12 metre range, which means that it would cause damage. Don't, don't misunderstand me, if it struck the ground, it would be a bad thing, but only in a relatively small area, a mile or so across, something along those sort of lines, uh, which sounds like a big area. Uh, but don't forget that the vast majority of the Earth is uninhabited. Two-thirds of the surface of the Earth is covered in water. Of the rest of it, the vast majority is deserts or tundra or all sorts of other places where there is very little human ha habitation. The chances of any one of these 6 to 12 metre things smashing into a heavily populated area is very, very slim. Uh, in fact, relatively recently, there have been uh, a couple of uh, impact events or, or uh, events that uh, blew up before they hit the ground. There were two in Australia relatively recently, um, and another one which actually did hit the ground in Costa Rica. Um, however... As I say, these things are extremely rare. They tend to be very, very small. Those ones were all too small to be able to cause any serious uh, damage. However, the rocks in these disaster movies are rather more dangerous. Um, Deep Impact, it was a comet, which actually interestingly makes it potentially more dangerous. Um, not because of its size. Its size was relatively small, about six miles across, which again is, is big as impacts go. It's about the same as the dinosaur impact, but as we'll find out in a minute, it's nothing compared to the Armageddon strike. Um, a comet is more dangerous because of where it comes from. It comes from much more distant parts of the solar system. They're typically on very elliptical orbits, which means they're a long way out from us 
for a very, very, very long time. And potentially they can be out there for hundreds, if not thousands of years on one single orbit. And the time that you discover it's about to strike you is that orbit. So it has to come within a reasonable distance of the Earth for us to notice it. Uh, asteroids, less dangerous on the whole because they, uh, they are in more circular orbits. Um, we have much more time to discover that they exist before they're likely to impact with us. They may be more common in our part of the, the solar system, but we've got more chance of seeing them well before the event happens. Anyway, Deep Impact's comet, uh, the result would be catastrophic, absolutely. The impact itself is very, very large, of course, uh, but the main problem would actually be the after effects, things like the dust cloud, which uh, causes a, a, a worldwide winter. Um, and as was the case for the dinosaurs, many forms of life would die off entirely. Um, some others would be wiped out almost to the point of extinction and then easily overtaken by forms of life that managed to deal more uh, handily with uh, the life, uh, sorry, with the conditions that were present. So that was exactly what happened with uh, dinosaurs. They probably almost certainly weren't wiped out immediately. We know, of course, that uh, modern-day birds are the, the uh, evolved forms, effectively, of dinosaurs, so some did survive. Um, but they were incapable of dealing with the, the environment that was left behind after the impact, and the much smaller mammals managed to take over and eventually become the dominant set of species uh, on the planet. As for what would happen to humans, uh, it's tough to say. There are arguments in both directions. Certainly it would be very, very bad for us. There's an argument we could get around it. It's probably true. But it's difficult to say. We'll just leave it there. Um, as for Michael Bay's Armageddon, <laughs> they went far, far bigger. Uh, 600 miles across, which makes it about the size of Texas, which I'm sure uh, was deliberate. Um, they would, it would likely be a large enough impact to vaporize a vast chunk of the Earth. Um, if it pretty effectively wipe out all life on the planet. Even microorganisms would have a tough time with this one. Um, so the, the lucky thing, however, is that while deep impact strikes, so comets or asteroids of six miles across, are once in a hundred million year events, um, Armageddon-like impacts, they haven't happened since the moon was formed. That was the last time an impact that sort of size occurred. That time it was something about the size of Mars, a bit bigger than 600 miles, but nonetheless still huge. Um, and chances are there won't be any more of those sort of events at all in the entire lifetime of the Earth. So we don't have to worry about Armageddon-like strikes too much. Um, the question is, what could we do to actually avoid these impacts if they were found to be imminent? Um, and clearly, the old uh, movie trope is to nuke them, uh, which the, is certainly... The classic approach absolutely. to most problems. Yep, send a big bomb its yep. way, absolutely. Uh, that's what Armageddon did, uh, that's what uh, Deep Impact attempted, um, with rather less success. Um, <laughs> in my uh, blunder years of university, um, I, along with a, a group of uh, colleagues, other students, wrote a, a short journal paper um, on the feasibility of the Armageddon approach. So this is drilling down into the surface of this 
vast asteroid dropping in a, a large bomb and setting it off. Um, in order to make the maths as easy as possible, don't forget we were still university students, this is not easy stuff as we'll discover later on, um, we used approximation after approximation to, to, to help us to determine, uh, to, to approximate what the answer would be, um, and every single one of our approximations worked in the bomb's favour. So we assumed that the the asteroid was in fact um, a perfect sphere which had already been split in half. So the bomb didn't have to crack the asteroid in two. All it had to do was push those two halves apart. We assumed that there was no gravity, that the object didn't try to force itself back together. Gravity wouldn't have been vast, but it would have been something. Um, we assumed that the... the uh, all of the energy of the bomb went into moving these parts of the asteroid apart, not producing light or sound or anything else, just moving the bomb apart. And perhaps it's not surprising for everything that I'm saying that even after all of that working in the favour of the bomb, the task we determined required something on the order of 800 trillion terajoules of energy. Uh, now, in case you're wondering how much energy that is, I have no particularly good way of telling you what it is except by comparing it to nuclear weapons. And it turns out the largest nuclear weapon that we've ever produced, the Tsar Bomber, which was only actually set off with half of its yield, we gave it the full yield because why not, um, had only 418,000 terajoules. So that's 800 trillion terajoules to do the job. And the, the biggest bomb that we've ever produced, 418,000. So it's off by a billion. Um, so not that effective. No, then. no, not really. Um, <laughs> so, to, so 800 trillion terajoules is about a billion big nuclear bombs. We've tended to move towards smaller uh, nuclear weapons now. So most of the arsenal that uh, the world has are much, much smaller than the Tsar Bomber. So you'd have to get a lot of them together in order to, to do anything even close to this. And the fact is, bombs have other problems as well. Um, there's the potential of fallout. Uh, there's the potential of uh, cracking the, the asteroid into lots of individual bits rather than actually spreading it far enough to, to, to deflect it, um, which causes all sorts of problems in of itself. Uh, one large thing that you could potentially push out of the way might be manageable, but lots and lots of little things that you have to somehow all get out of the way, and when I say little, we're still talking vast chunks of rock here, perhaps a bit more complicated. However, of course, as I've said, we're not really interested in trying to deflect an Armageddon-sized uh, asteroid. They don't really exist. We don't need to worry about them. Uh, an Armageddon-sized asteroid would be the equivalent of Ceres, the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. And there are only a handful even close to the size of Ceres, and none of them are on anywhere near uh, an Earth uh, uh, an Earth-directing orbit. So, what we're instead looking at is much, much smaller things. Perhaps the deep impact size, a few miles, maybe just hundreds of metres. Um, and that's where NASA's upcoming mission comes in. This is the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, which will launch in 2021 and rendezvous with its target asteroid in the autumn of 2022. Um, the target is a binary asteroids, so this is two asteroids orbiting around one another, um, called Didymos. 
And it's a so-called potentially hazardous asteroid because it comes within one twentieth of the distance from the Earth to the Sun, which is still a much, much longer distance than the, the near misses that I was talking about earlier. But nonetheless, there is potential that one day it could, maybe a very long time away, strike. The main asteroid is 800 metres across, so we're already well under the six miles of the, the dinosaur-wiping-out asteroid, and yet that isn't even actually DART's target. DART's target is its much smaller companion, which is 150 metres across. So a little bit longer than a... well, about the size of a stadium, basically. Um, so a big rock, sure but certainly not the, the world-ending impact events that we are talking about in these movies. Dart's mission is actually really simple. Crash into it. Uh, yeah, it's as simple as that. There's no bomb, there's no long, complicated drilling mission. Uh, it's just a crash to see what would happen. Uh, the main thing that they're looking for is how Dart's momentum is transferred into the asteroid. Um, now, Dart's momentum will be very, very small compared with the momentum of the asteroid itself. Um, and they're expecting the motion of the asteroid to change by no more than a, a millimetre per second. So these are extraordinarily slow, tiny, tiny changes, uh, especially compared to the, the speeds that we just heard of Apollo 10. Um, it may not sound like much, and it isn't really, but if you do it early enough on an asteroid that you've predicted well in advance is going to impact with the Earth, then a millimetre per second stretched out over the course of several years becomes large enough to turn a definite strike into a near miss. And of course, that's the main aim. Um, definitely worth an attempt. Uh, the problem is we have absolutely no idea how that momentum is going to be absorbed by the asteroid. Uh, we don't know what the asteroid is made out of directly, and so we don't know whether the, the impact is just going to be sort of absorbed by the asteroid and not really do anything. Um, and that could be a problem. Um, and that's, of course, why this mission is going out there in the first place. Another problem is that it's possible that to move the asteroid far enough uh, would require more in, uh, energy from a specific impact than the asteroid would be able to take. In other words, you crash so hard into this thing that you end up breaking the asteroid apart anyway, um, which potentially would be harder to deal with, as we talked about earlier. Nonetheless, let's hope that the mission is a success because while these events are extremely rare and they are certainly nothing to be worried about in the short term, one day our survival might just depend on the early work of projects just like this. And I hear Bruce Willis is cutting back on the action roles. Ah, so we can't call upon him in our hour of need? Probably not. Yes. Oh dear. So let's hope this works instead. Yeah, and I think something that needs to be pointed out as well is often people are quite surprised to read about near misses with asteroids. And yeah. the question that pops up is, well, why didn't you see it earlier? And they're really hard <laughs> they're to really spot. Hard to find. Asteroids don't come with flashing lights and, nope. and you know, sort of make themselves known. And yeah. sometimes they do sneak up on us and... While none have hit us, one of the other concerns as well is that that close pass 
alters its trajectory. So the next time and it so hits. And so the next time yeah, yeah, yeah. it could hit. So these are sort of ground-based tracking stations that are just dedicated to scanning the skies, trying to find these things, mm-hmm. are needed because we don't know how much is out there. And there's some things yep. that we haven't seen yet, and we're only going to find them by continuing to, to scan the skies. Yep. And if Bruce can't help us out... <laughs> We need these missions to to help us in the eventuality that something is heading our way. Yes. That being said, all uh, as as we've mentioned, uh, near misses, even reasonably sizable near misses, are really quite common. So don't be surprised when when newspapers are um, mentioning the, the that uh, an asteroid is going to fly past the Earth in next week. Um, yes, yeah, it will. Uh, probably along with another one at some point. Most of them we miss. Uh, but most of them are also so small that they wouldn't cause a big problem even if they did strike. Okay, so that's it for our news segment today. Two news stories for you to choose between. Um, you'll have the chance to uh, vote on your favourite story on our Twitter feed, at ROG Astronomers. Last month, we had uh, the breaking news of the image of a black hole. That was my story from last month, uh, along with the fantastic story from Patricia of um, the Trident mission to Neptune's moon Triton. Um, With 61% of the vote... I'm afraid to say I did win that one this time. It's not particularly surprising. <laughs> but black holes are a, are a good one. They, they often do well. Um, but our new stories will be up for you to vote at ROG Astronomers. Uh, please, if you are listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, uh, then do give us a like or uh, uh, recommend us. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you join us again next month for more from Look Up. Mm-hmm.